Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards. Episode 96, Cyril Ibn Lala. So, we last stopped with al Kamil following his father as the Sultan of Egypt and Syria on the heels of the Fifth Crusade, a failed enterprise that was followed up by the German emperor successfully negotiating a peaceful handover of Jerusalem. During that time, and really for the next 20 years or so, the Coptic Patriarchy was empty, with the priest Dawood having been previously a contender for the office fading into the background, living in obscurity in a monastery far away from all the action. By 1235, the situation was pretty desperate, and the church was a few years away from ending up with no bishops at all, a fate that would have probably meant the end of Christianity in Egypt. And so, in desperation, a monk named Ahmed was probably the tacit approval if not the encouragement of Dawood, approached al Kamil with an offer. In return for supporting the ordination of Dawood to the patriarchy, a sum of 3,000 dinars would be deposited in the treasury. al Kamil, who, like I mentioned earlier, had practical leanings and was relatively tolerant, allowed it. Why not, right? It's easy money. And so, the priest Dawood was ordained patriarch Cyril ibn Lala by a pair of bishops and very little fanfare. The opposition toward him was still very strong, even 20 years after the death of John, but the patriarch was badly needed. So while no one fought his ordination, no one celebrated it either. At his first day of the job, Cyril had two problems. One, he owed Al-Kamil 3,000 dinars, and two, he only had four bishops in the whole of Egypt. If he asked her also, problem number two was really a solution rather than a problem. You see, with no bishops, he can do whatever he wants with very little opposition. For example, he can charge money to ordain clergy, thus easily solving problem number one. And he, not the type that worries too much about appearances and other people's opinions, truly opened the floodgates with a set schedule of fees and everything. 100 to 200 dinars if you wanted to be a bishop, 5 dinars if you wanted to be a priest, and 3 dinars for a deacon. Also, sometimes he charged up to 10, depending on how unqualified you were. In less than a year, Cyril consecrated 40 bishops and countless new deacons and priests, 
covering his debts to the treasury, and plenty more. One of these bishops was a Coptic bishop of Jerusalem, a fascinating detail and a first in our history. You see, at this point, Jerusalem was being controlled by the Franks, part of the kingdom of Jerusalem. Not to mention, historically, its Miaphysite bishop was ordained by the Antiochian patriarch, not the Coptic one. So, not only Cyril was willing to wade into muddy geopolitical waters, he truly saw himself as the head of the Copts, wherever they went, not just the ones living in Egypt. As I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, a famine at the start of Al-Kamil reign in Egypt led to a significant migration from rural Egypt to cities in Egypt and throughout Syria and Palestine. So the Bishop of Jerusalem was not a theoretical one, no. He ran and operated Coptic churches inside the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem. As one of our sources puts it, quote, He sought help from the Franks, and he made friends with a group of them, and he ministered in the churches of the Copts, he and his people. And it was said that the Franks obtained his signature, that his confession was their confession, and his creed was their creed. Obviously, that last part about confession and the creed is problematic. Likely so, it was just a practical arrangement to get to work. As a consequence of his ordination, so, the usually warm relationship between the Patriarch of Antioch and the Patriarch of Alexandria became very strained during his reign. Also, lest you forget, the Coptic community at this point was filled with men of litters who absolutely hated simony and all what came with it. So very quickly, Cyril managed to alienate practically everybody he came in contact with. As one of these men of flitters puts it, describing Cyril, quote, he was in love with power, gathering wealth, and taking simony. Even Abul Futh, the powerful patron who sponsored him all the way back in the beginning, at this point, he cut his ties with Cyril. By the end of year two of his reign, the Coptic elite in Cairo formed a united front against him and confronted him about his action. Luckily for us, their dialogue was recorded, and it's worth quoting in full. Quote, they said to him, How long will you do these things that have made us a disgrace among the nations and people? He said to them, What things? You accepting simony for the priesthood? We're discharging our debt to the Sultan, he said. And who required you to settle money for the Sultan? Then he told them, it was you who went to the king. And so they responded, you were not appointed to enter into this, nor was the patriarch forced on you, but you bribed your way to it, and engaged in it for yourself, chasing after it for what today is a period of 20 years. You have ruined our church. I have not ruined your church, but built it up. There were hardly a bishop left in it, and today they are 50. A couple of months after, Cyril continued to alienate everybody, having a fight with his secretary and accountant, who responded by publishing his accounts. In two years, Cyril had managed to collect over 9,000 dinars from simony, far exceeding his debts to the sultan. This revelation was followed up by an even more damaging crisis, where, for political reasons that we will get to in a second, 
forced labor was reintroduced on a communal basis where you had Jewish working groups, Coptic, Muslim, and so on. Cyril, rather than being a picture and try to organize the effort, completely abandoned his responsibilities and left the working class cops to their own fate, making him very unpopular with both the masses and the elite. Having had enough, the community organized, and by 1239, only three years into his reign, they pushed for a formal senate that was meant to depose him, or at least put limits on what he can do. Only 14 bishops attended the senate, so most of them ordained by him. So nothing really came out of it. One of Aulad al-Assal, al-Safi, was there, and the first draft of his canons was adopted as a guideline. But naturally, as you would expect, Cyril made sure to ignore them as soon as the senate was over. A year later, with the opposition to Cyril growing louder, the sultan himself had to get involved. And so, by government decree, since the official way of organizing a senate went nowhere, two bishops were appointed to supervise the patriarch at all of his decisions. Farzer, al-Safi ibn al-Assal, was commissioned to produce a definitive collection of canons to guide the church. The result, al-Magma al-Safawi, or al-Safi's compilations, ended up being the definitive medieval Coptic church canons, and is arguably still very relevant to this day. Cyril, for his part, humiliated and deposed in all but name, retired to a monastery, where he died three years later with 2,000 dinars, literally, discovered under his pillow when he died. Regrettably, he did not get to take him with him. Now, the story so far is just your typically overambitious, failed great man. But to give him credit, Cyril was more than that. His scholarly contribution was significant, and if we are to be fair, forever altered the church. You see, up until his reign, the issue of the sacrament of confession, raised by Morcus ibn al-Kumbur, was really up in the air. In matter of fact, part of the strong opposition against him was his commitment to the sacrament of confession, as Morcus ibn al-Kumbur described. He, in the words of his predecessor, John, had a corrupt face like the Greeks. Well, Cyril, at some point during his career, wrote a very influential book on the subject. The Book of the Master and the Disciple, sometimes simply known as the Book of Confession. In it, he laid down the foundation of the Sacrament of Confession as its practice to this day. As the Patriarch, his word on the subject had a lasting legitimacy, helped perhaps by the fact that a whole new generation of bishops was ordained by his hand in the span of a couple of years, having been instructed, or at least aware, of their patriarch feelings on the subject. Not to mention, as fate would have it, it kinda ended up being the last word, as no one ventured into theological matters for a few centuries after Cyril. They were too busy just trying to survive. And this wasn't all of it either. To this day, Jerusalem has a Coptic metropolitan, thanks to Cyril. So, as Mark and Swanson puts it, if Cyril is to be held responsible for the church administrative chaos of his day, 
he should also be allowed some glimmer of the glory of the golden age of the sciences in the Coptic Orthodox Church. Now, once Cyril died in 1243, the sentiment of the Copts regarding patriarchs was pretty grim, and, out of abbacy, no patriarch was ordained for the next seven years. Only when the Melkite Church ordained a patriarch for them in 1250, and the world literally turned upside down, did the bishops and the Coptic elite move to ordain a Coptic patriarch as well. Fearing a loss of representation to the Muslim government, which was becoming highly unstable. And this here, my dear listeners, is where we will stop with the affairs of the patriarchy. We know very little for the next few centuries about the Coptic patriarchs, just a name and a date when a patriarch was elevated and died, plus a few scattered stories that I will get to next week in our epilogue episode. The point is, as the year 1250 rolled around, the church, specifically the patriarchy, as an institution, was barely alive, having been weakened significantly by two decades of absent leadership, followed by several belief reign of corruption and chaos, followed by another seven years of absence. It is truly a miracle that the Coptic patriarchy did not die right now and then. I mean, come to think of it, the 1250s was a graveyard of political and religious institutions. The Ayyubids, they died as the French came to Egypt on another crusade, killing them off in the process. The Caliphate, dead in all but name, as the Mongols swept over the Levant, raising Baghdad to the ground. Even the stubborn Latin kingdoms, they too died after a prolonged struggle with the Mamluks. The Order of Assassins, the Armenian Kingdoms of Syria, the Seljuk Turks, they all went away right about now. Yet somehow, the quickly dwindling Christians in Egypt, with very little political and economic power, survived that storm. Barely, but survived nonetheless. I mean, here I am, doing a podcast about it. Why all the upheaval, you ask? Well, get ready, because things are about to move very quickly. Where we last left, Al-Kamil, the Sultan, was handing over Jerusalem to the German Emperor so he can avoid another crusade and the instability that holy wars bring. A successful approach, as for the rest of his reign, was peaceful and prosperous, from 1229, when Jerusalem was handed over, to the day that he died in 1238. Like his uncle Salahuddin and his father Al-Adil, Al-Kamil ended up drawing a fancy division of his empire among his sons, hoping that they will live happily ever after, satisfied with their lot. A pipe dream that did not last more than a couple of years, as the family quickly turned on each other. To make a long story short, the son that was given Egypt was deposed in a couple of years, and his brother, Nigmiddin, took over. As Nigm's star started to rise, his uncle, maintaining the balance of power, managed to take Damascus from him. And so, attempting to follow his family's footprints, Nigm set out to conquer Syria and rule as the Sultan of Egypt and Syria. And to do that, he needed a bigger army. 
And so he started buying tons of slave soldiers, Mamluks, who happened to be very affordable at the junction of our story, as the Mongol tide was rising in Central Asia and Russia, which meant plenty of children were around to be enslaved and turned into killing machines. His uncle, in response, allied with the kingdom of Jerusalem. In that context of civil war, forced labor was reintroduced in Egypt, one of the many reasons Cyril was despised. Anyway, as these things went, it ended up being a, a stalemate really, with Nizm unable to remove his uncle, and his uncle unable to make Nizm go away, up until the Mongols moved again. In their march west, they ended up displacing a whole state made up of nomadic warriors, the Khawarzmanians. These guys, wishing to survive and avoid the Mongols, ended up going west as well, where Nish offered them an alliance and a home. In return, they were terrain destruction, literally burn everything down under march from eastern Syria to Egypt. And they did, raising Jerusalem to the ground in 1244 and allowing Negm to move from Egypt and rule the ashes that they left. And just to be sorrow here, Najm was smart enough to never allow them to enter Egypt or give them a home. Rather, he strung them out, using them to fight his opponents in Syria, until both sides were too weak to oppose him. Now, he too, like his father and grandfather, had become the sultan of Egypt and Syria. Also, Syria was essentially a pile of ashes, so there weren't really much to rule there. Not only that, the raising of Jerusalem meant it was time for another crusade. You see, over in France was a 30-year-old king, Louis IX, in the middle of a cultural and economic peak, brought on by his grandfather, Philip II, who, with intelligent and careful rule, built the French monarchy into a powerhouse. That Philip, lest you forget, was the same guy that took a lot of heat for leaving the Second Crusade earlier in our story. So yeah, like I said, he was smart and able to see the big picture. Anyway, Louis, having learned nothing from his grandfather, was gripped with religious zeal and set his heart on crusading. And so, four years after Jerusalem had fallen, with elaborate preparation, he set out to conquer Egypt and then take Jerusalem. And so, on May 1249, 1,120 ships appeared in the horizon of the Meta, filled with over 25,000 Frenchmen, led by their king. Nigmeddin, on the other side, sent his own 20,000-plus Mamluk army, hardened warriors who were enslaved, or at least survived, the Mongols, led by a certain crafty fellow named Fakhreddin. Unlike the last time a crusade was in Egypt, the Franks were never allowed to land without a fight. And so, up and down the Damieta shore, Mamluks charged into the water, while French knights fought with the waters up to their waist, rebelling them back. Eventually, a beachhead was established, 
and the Seventh Crusade army finally landed in Egypt. Fakhreddin, perhaps aware of the events of the Fifth Crusade, abandoned Damietta, opting instead to fortify a position in the same spot that Al-Kamil did a generation earlier, in the modern city of Al-Mansura, literally the victorious one, named as this is where the Crusaders were defeated. But really, Fakhreddin, had he wanted to, who could have stayed and defended Damietta pretty well. He didn't want to so, as his eyes were somewhere else. You see, as fate would have it, the Sultan, Nigmiddin, was sick, dying if you ask his ambitious family or Mamluks. His general, Fakhreddin, had no wishes to be stuck fighting crazy Frenchmen over Damietta, only to be pushed out in the upcoming succession crisis. And so, he left Damietta to the Franks, so he could control his own fate when Nejm eventually dies. As you'd expect, the Sultan was pretty pissed off when he found out that his slave soldiers retreated. So, in his despot, he ordered that a whole unit of them be hanged as an example, which really just meant that he had eliminated one faction of a multi-headed hydra that was the Mamluk army at this point. Not much was achieved, except perhaps making the elite corpse of the Mamluks, the special unit named the Bahireya, even more dangerous. Over in Damietta, the French, blissfully ignorant of the Ayyubids' dysfunction. And so, also with the lessons of the Fifth Crusade in mind, Louis opted not to move right away, and stay put in Damietta. It was June now, which means they only had a couple of months to get out of the delta before the Nile floods. It would be a close call. So, staying in Damietta was a pretty smart decision on the face of it, except that it gave time for the Mamluks to get their act together. By late November, the Nile started to recede, and the crusaders headed out toward Al-Mansura. Two days later, the Sultan finally died from his illness, leaving a complicated mess of factions behind him. But at least everyone knew that it was coming. Fakhreddin, his leading general, made an alliance with his favorite concubine, a certain Shagrat al-Durr, to keep his death a secret, while he slowly consolidated his power over the Mamluks and dealt with the Franks. That consolidation included sending the commander of the Bahareya, a certain Aktai, all the way to Iraq, as he and his unit were really the only threat to Fakhreddin. In the meantime, Louis and his army were marching extremely slowly, having to cross the river multiple times and in the process being harassed by the Mamluks. By February, they were at the most dangerous and difficult crossing, very close to Al-Mansura. Prepared as always, Louis intended to have the Templars cross first, then his knights, and then, if all went well, the rest of the army. It was crucial that the knights and the Templars, once they cross, stay put until everyone else crosses. Unfortunately, as with all wars, plan all you want. All it takes is one dumb decision by one person, and it all falls apart. That one person was the king's brother, 
who led the group of knights crossing after the Templars. Rather than follow the plan and wait for everyone else to cross, he decided to go ahead and charge the Mamluks camp with his 600 knights. Hard to say why, but to give him some credit, the Mamluks looked like they were unprepared, sleeping even, well into the morning. And as he charged, the Templars followed, leaving the king and most of the army, literally, in the middle of a river crossing. Initially, his audacity seemed to pay dividends, as indeed, the Mamluks were completely caught by surprise, and Fakhreddin himself was cut down before he even got the chance to get a weapon. Many of the Mamluks managed to escape the Karnerso and run into Mansura itself, a typical medieval town with tightly arranged houses and streets, and in a typical crusader fashion, rather than realize that the element of surprise was now gone and that you cannot execute a heavy charge over a row of houses, the king's brother, rather than delight at his quick victory and wait for the rest of the army, he charged again into Al-Mansura itself. There was little room for the horses to run. The knights were picked one by one by Al-Bahiriya, leaving no survivors from the 600 knights. Worse, they died so quickly that the Mamluks were able to race ahead and catch Louis and the infantry still attempting to cross the river. With the Franks spread between the two banks of the Nile, a rout was expected. Nonetheless, Louis snatched a tie of a certain defeat, managing to salvage a defensive camp and organizing what was left of his army. He and they survived, but were surrounded by all sides by the Mamluks. A month later, a retreat was attempted, but it failed miserably. The king was captured, while most of his soldiers were butchered while trying to outrun the Mamluks' horses. In the Mamluks' side, the sultan thus eventually leaked out, and so the victory was quickly followed by a coup, where Akhtai, the commander of the Bahreya, back from Iraq, predictably eliminated the official heir of the sultan and seized power. Louis, for his part, was eventually released in return for Dameta and a massive ransom. Returning to Europe four years later in 1254. The same year, Aktai were no longer the strongest soldier and was assassinated by another Mamluk warlord, Kotos, who in turn was assassinated a year later by another Mamluk, Bibers. And so, my friends, the age of the Mamluks have started, where, by force alone, rulers lived and died. Next week, we will do our epilog episode, tracking the rise of the Mangles, their defeat by Kutuz and Vipers, and then a big overview of the age of the Mamluks and what we know about the Copts then. After that, the podcast will officially end. Thank you for listening, farewell, and until next time.